Okay, so our, our reading is from John chapter 3, verse 16 to 21, uh, which is... Um, well, I've got a large print Bible here, so I think it's the same 1,650, if you've got a large print Bible. Or, yeah. Here we go. There you are. 1,112. <laughs> okay. <clears throat> For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because he has not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but men loved darkness instead of light, because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light, and will not come into the light, for fear that his deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light, so that it may be seen plainly, that what he has done has been done through God. Okay, the next reading is um, Romans, starting at Romans 3, page 100, sorry, 1180. 1180. But now a righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance, he had left sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting? Is it excluded? On what principle? On that of observing the law? No, but on that of faith. For we maintain that a man who is justified by faith, apart from observing the law, is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles too? Yes, of Gentiles too, since there is only one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through the same faith. Do we then nullify the law by this faith? Not at all. Rather, we uphold the law. What then we say that Abraham what then shall we say that Abraham our forefather discovered in this matter if in fact Abraham was justified by works he had something to boast about but not before God what does the scripture say Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness uh, now when that man works his wages are not credited to him as a gift but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God, who is justified, who, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as, as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness 
of the man to whom God credits the righteousness apart from works. We saw last week that 500 years ago, everyone knew there was one issue that mattered. Life was short. Life was perilous. God is a righteous judge. And no one can stand righteous before him. Everyone knows that the verdict will go against them. So there was just one thing that really mattered, one issue that needed to be resolved. How could you deal with your unrighteousness? How could you deal with your sin? How could you deal with the punishment that was coming upon you? How could you be saved from judgment on the last day? And thank goodness there was a clear answer. The church told you the answer. The church was the answer. Of course, the answer was about faith in Jesus. He had died and risen again and was now in heaven at God's right hand and you needed to put your faith in what he had done. After all, he had paid for your sins, the church said. He would paid for the eternal punishment that was coming on you. But there was more. Your sin, said the church, didn't just bring an eternal punishment, which Jesus had dealt with. Your sin brought temporal punishments, punishments that happened in time either in this life or the next. When Jesus said on the cross, it is finished, he didn't mean it was all finished, it just meant his part was finished. Yes, your eternal punishment could be paid by Jesus, you had to put your faith in him, but there were still temporal punishments to be paid. You needed to be cleansed and made righteous. How could you do that? By doing good, good works. By doing the tasks that the priests gave you to do, your penance. And if that wasn't enough, there would be time in purgatory. Purgatory is that strange place that happens after death that we're never quite sure what it means. And I really wasn't quite sure what it meant until a couple of weeks ago. But it's Not for those who don't believe in Jesus, it's for those who do believe in Jesus, according to the Catholic Church, but aren't quite ready for heaven yet. They need to deal with some sin, they need to clean up their act, and a few thousand years in purgatory will do the trick. But the good news was, even there, when it came to the problem of purgatory, the Catholic Church could help you out. You see, Jesus and Mary and the saints had been so good, unlike the rest of you, so good that they had a surplus, a surplus of righteousness, a surplus of merit, and God had collected all that merit together and put it in a treasury, a treasury 
of merit, like a bank. It was actually called a treasury of merit. And thankfully, God had appointed one exclusive distributor of this merit on earth so that you could get some. Who was this exclusive distributor on earth? You guessed it, the Roman Catholic Church. And if you could do the right thing to get them to release some of it, you could get some of that merit for yourself or for your loved ones, even for your loved ones who died. Wouldn't that be good? These were called indulgences, and they were the hot property 500 years ago. Well, all power corrupts, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. And an organization that had this power was bound to become corrupt. The Pope, the head of the Roman Catholic Church, needed money. He was building a great big church called St. Peter's in Rome. And Martin Luther's local archbishop needed money too. He'd taken out a big loan to buy his position, because that's how you got them. He needed to pay off his debts and the Pope needed to pay the builder. How would they do this? Indulgences were the key. And so they sent out their salesman. And his name was Tetzel. You can see his words recorded for us there on the screen. This was his sales pitch to the poor peasants of Germany. Don't you hear the voices of your wailing dead parents and others who say, have mercy upon me, have mercy upon me, because we are in severe punishment and pain. From this you could redeem us with a small alms money, and yet you do not want to do so. Open your ears, as the father says to the son and the mother to the daughter, we have created you and fed you and cared for you and left you our temporal goods. Why then are you so cruel and harsh that you do not want to save us, though it only takes a little? You let us lie in flames so that we only slowly come to the promised glory. It was quite a sales pitch. You can hear the spiritual abuse, can't you? Meanwhile, in Wittenberg, there was a monk, Martin Luther, who knew, perhaps more than any other, that the verdict was going to go against him. He was guilty, a sinner as bad as could be, and he tried all the church's answers to get himself right with God. He confessed his sins for hours each day. He starved himself. He beat himself. And yet it did no good. He had no peace. He was asked to prepare lectures on Romans. And as he prepared these lectures on the book of Romans, he found the real answer. Have a look at it there in Romans chapter 3. As he read through the first three chapters of Romans, he discovered that he was right. The verdict was going to go against him. Verse 20. 
No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by observing the law. But now a righteousness from God has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. Luther had no righteousness in himself. He knew that. The verdict would go against him. But there was a righteousness that came from God to people. How? Through the sacraments, through saying a confession to a priest and doing the penance, through buying an indulgence? No, not a word about that here. The righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The word faith, the word believe are the same word through faith to all who believe. It couldn't be clearer. And Luther had found it. How was it, though, that simply by believing, by having faith, you could be made righteous? In our house at mealtimes, it's often a struggle. At the beginning of the mealtime, I say to the youngest child, I won't tell you his name to protect the guilty, but the youngest child, I say you have to eat everything that's on your plate before you leave the table. After about half an hour, when the rest of us have finished dinner and would really like to get on with the rest of the evening, I, decided to, I decide to lower my standards. You see that piece of broccoli on the right on your plate, my son? You just have to eat that. Then you will have fulfilled all righteousness. No, I don't say that. Is that what it's like with God and with faith? God sees that no one will be declared righteous before him, wants to declare someone righteous before him, and so he lowers the standard from obeying all his commands, including faith, to just faith because that's the bit he most wants that'll be best for us, like broccoli. And faith somehow counts for everything. No, surely that can't be right, can it? Faith is not that good. It doesn't count for everything. Faith is not a work. Do you see that in chapter 4? Verse 4, now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work, but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. God declares people righteous who have faith. Why? Not because faith is worth it. Not because your faith is that good or my faith is that good or anyone's faith is that good. It is not. It is not because of faith that he declares people righteous. But did you see the word? Through faith. That's how it comes. 
What is it because of? It's because of Jesus and what he has done. They are justified, verse 24 of chapter 3, freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. This is what Luther grasped. It was because of Jesus through faith. Have a look, if you flip over the sermon outline, you see it there, what he said about faith alone. He grasped this so clearly. There is nothing here for us to do, only to hear that these things have been done for us and by faith to grasp hold of them. Luther discovered that the answer to his problem Yes, the verdict was going to go against him, but God had made a promise. He had done everything in Christ, and ahead of time, before that last day of judgment, had declared him righteous. Not because his faith was worth it, but because of what Jesus had done. He had discovered the idea that changed his life world faith alone well it was 1517 as luther was just beginning to understand this whole system that the catholic system was wrong that the indulgence circus came to town tetzel came with his sales pitch and everything else that would persuade the peasants to pay their money and luther was disgusted what corruption and false hope and manipulation. And he was not the only one. As he nailed up his 95 theses criticising this, they were copied and printed across Germany and it was like a dry bush waiting for a bushfire, waiting for a spark that would light a bushfire and the bushfire was lit and it spread like wildfire across Germany. And the Catholic Church realised this was not just about corruption, it was an attack on the whole Catholic theology, on the whole system. So they condemned Luther, they condemned his ideas, they condemned anyone who believed his ideas. And suddenly, the one church was split in two. It was an idea that now had not only changed Luther's world, but the world. But actually, nothing has really changed. Can you still buy indulgences, do you think? Well, I checked this week by looking on the place that you look on these days, eBay. I typed in indulgences to see what I could find. Time out of purgatory, I'm hoping for. They didn't seem to be available. Actually, there are a lot of indulgences, but most of them seem to involve chocolate, which was not what I was looking for, I think. You can't buy indulgences any longer. They are not on the market. At least, not for money. The Catholic Church still teaches that there is a place called purgatory. For those who believe in Christ, who trust him, 
but whose temporal punishment has not yet been completed in this life. They still teach purgatory and they still teach a treasury of merit. For there is still a surplus of merit to go round, to apply to you or to your loved ones, including those who have died. Here it is, indulgences. And indulgence is obtained through the church who intervenes in favour of individual Christians and opens for them the treasury of the merits of Christ and the saints to obtain from the Father of mercies the remission of the punishments due for their sins. There is still a treasury. The Catholic Church is still the exclusive distributor on earth and you can still get some. A reduction in your punishment, a reduction of your time in purgatory. But if you can't buy it, how do you get some? Well, when we did a similar series back in 2008, the Pope was coming to town. And when the Pope was coming to town for World Youth Day, like the Olympic torch relay, they had a special cross that processed around Australia. And the Pope had declared that if you turned up to the procession of the cross, you would get an indulgence. That was a great story to tell in the series back in 2008. But what was I going to say this time? Well, I googled it, of course. Indulgences, Australia, 2017. Do you think I would find anything? You bet. 100 years ago, three children in Portugal, in a place called Fatima, saw the Virgin Mary, they say, on three different occasions. It has been celebrated ever since. She is called Our Lady of Fatima. And it's the 100th anniversary. And to celebrate this 100th anniversary, the Pope has declared that you can get an indulgence. What do you need to do? Have faith. Go to confession, go to mass, and here is the important bit. Go to one of the designated churches in each city and go to one of the designated doors in that church and walk through the doorway. They are called open doors, capital O, capital D. And if you do that, you'll get a reduction in your temporal punishment and a reduction of your time in purgatory. When I looked it up on Friday, that was the 100th anniversary of the third appearance. And so there have been celebrations across Sydney as a result this weekend, though I think you've missed it now. It was an idea that changed the world this faith alone. But it did not change the Catholic Church's teaching. No, you can't buy it with money anymore. And that's really good they stopped that bit. But nothing else changed. And one billion people are still affected by this. But is that all there is to say for us? Don't become a Catholic. 
No, there's more here, isn't there? We need to understand faith alone and live it. And if we do, it will change our world. What is faith? How would you define it? If someone asked you, what does it mean to have faith? Faith is something that people admire, isn't it? Sometimes people will even say, I wish I had your faith, by which they mean, I wish I could believe things that I know aren't really true, as if that's what we do. It's not. Faith is simply trusting, isn't it? Everyone has faith. My faith right now is in this music stand as I lean out and on the floor. What is your faith in? The chairs. Therefore, you are leaning your weight upon them. You've made an assessment that the church chairs are able to hold your weight because in the past they have. You are putting your faith in the chair. Even people who say they have no faith have a faith. It is a faith in themselves. It is not whether you have faith or not. Everyone does. But who is your faith in? And a Christian person is someone who has their faith in Jesus. Faith is what you do with a chair. And as you all know, faith is not just to say, there is a chair. I believe there is a chair. Or I believe that this chair could hold me up. What is it to have faith? Some of you have heard this many times before. It is to sit on the chair. I'll show you. Is my faith in the chair? Yes. Is my faith in the chair alone? No. Why not? The chair's on the ground. What would I need to do to put my faith in the chair alone? Thank you, Katrina. Well done. The scientist comes through. Lift my feet up. My faith is now completely in the chair. If this chair fails... I will fall. My faith is in the chair alone. I am depending upon faith alone, or rather upon the chair. Now, a Christian is someone who puts their faith in Jesus. But here's what we're tempted to do. I don't think any of us are tempted to buy an indulgence or to walk through an open door to get an indulgence. But here's what we're tempted to do. Faith alone will be to do what? Faith alone will be to sit on Jesus, the Jesus chair. Faith in Jesus, but not alone, would be to sit on Jesus and on something else. What might the something else be? Coming to church each week, that I've been baptised, that I belong in a Christian family that I do the right thing, that I'm kind to my brothers and sisters. We rest on Jesus and we rest on ourselves or our church or our good works. Is our faith then really in Jesus when we do that? Mm, not sure what to say. It's certainly not faith alone or faith in Jesus alone. Is it? 
When I do that and sit on two chairs, how do you think the first chair feels? <laughs> I beg your pardon? Like a chair. Feels like a chair. It does look like a chair. I imagine that if we could employ a chair psychologist and ask the chair in chair language, how did you feel when Sean sat upon you and the other chair as if he didn't really trust you? I imagine the chair would say, I really couldn't care less. Because chairs don't care, do they? Now, when we rest upon Jesus and what he has done for us, and something else. Whatever it might be, how does Jesus feel? Does Jesus feel something? Does he care about that? Yes. Is Jesus offended by that? Yes. Is it a terrible blasphemy when we pretend to trust in Jesus by trusting in him and something else? Yes. That is what Martin Luther saw. And so each time we realize that we are doing it. When we feel proud of what we have done and we think, I am doing well here. God must be pleased with me. Or when we feel down upon ourselves and wonder whether God really accepts me. Or when we have not read our Bible first thing in the morning and so we think that the day is not going to go well because we haven't pleased God in the morning and really we're a long way from God as if it depended upon us. Jesus is offended. And we have committed a great blasphemy that we need to repent for we are saved through faith alone. Now let's take the other chair away for a moment. Can you see how good it is to sit upon this one chair that can hold you up? Can you see how much your world would change if you were completely dependent upon Jesus and had your faith in him alone and knew that it was through faith alone that you were saved. How good it would be to know the judge's verdict ahead of time with certainty. Some of you have heard before about how I visited a man once who was waiting for the judge's verdict. I'd been visiting an elderly lady from our church who couldn't come to church any longer and so as the minister I went to visit her. She could barely get out of the house and so it was a great mystery one day when she disappeared out of the house when he was out playing tennis, or so he said. They searched for her for weeks and eventually we held a memorial service because we presumed she must be dead. About a week after the memorial service, the police arrested him. And he led them to where he had buried her body. And he was charged with murder. When I went to visit him was a, in between the trial and the verdict. 
He argued that it had been a mercy killing or something or other, and so he wasn't really guilty. But the trial had not been going well for him, and he knew which way it was heading, but it just hadn't happened yet, do you see? He was awaiting the verdict, and he knew that the verdict was going against him. What do you think he was feeling? I have never met a man who was so anxious who was so afraid and distraught and unable to concentrate on anything else. That's just what Martin Luther was like. For he knew the verdict was going against him, and that is just what you and I are like without Christ. How good is it then to know that the verdict will be for us ahead of time? What great confidence and joy is there in that? You certainly wouldn't be swayed by Christian cults, would you, who tell you that you have to join their church or do baptism their way or follow their rules because you have such great confidence and joy. And what about success? When you're a child, you're constantly struggling to be a success, aren't you? At school, you struggle and struggle and finally you have the last exams and they're going to give you a mark and that will tell you whether you're a success or not. When you're an adult, it doesn't change. You still have to succeed in your career or in your parenting or in your marriage. And some of us feel proud because we've done well and some of us feel like failures because we've failed. What does faith alone say? You are a failure. For there is no one righteous before God. Here is the one area that matters the most and it is the one area that every one of us is a failure and we have to depend upon someone else. If you're a proud person, faith alone will destroy your pride. And if you feel like a failure, faith alone will save you as a person. Finally, faith alone means that you can finally actually do good. If you think that you have to do good to reduce your time in purgatory, to earn your way into heaven for God to be pleased with you, then you will do good. It'll work as a motivation. But every time you do something good, it will be selfish. After the service, I see that you really need a cup of tea. And so I think, I'll get you a cup of tea because I want to be kind and loving. But I also want to be okay with God and rack up my points. Every time I'm good to you, I'm being selfish for me. That's not a good work, is it? Now put on your faith alone hat. You know that it has all been done. There is nothing more to do. You are secure and confident and joyful. And in response to that, you want to do good. And every time you do good, it is not for your benefit, but for the other person. I get you a cup of tea, and it's only because I want to love you. How good would relationships be when they are like that? There was one thing that mattered 500 years ago. It was to be right with God. They had that bit right. But there is only one way 
to be right with God. What Jesus has done, not what we do. So we must have faith alone. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you tell us the truth that we are failures, that not one of us is righteous, that there is nothing we can do. We thank you that in your great generosity, Jesus has done it all and that our salvation comes through faith and through faith alone. Father, help us to see the error of any system, any thought, any idea that adds to this. And Father, as we are constantly aware of sitting on two chairs, of trying to add to what Jesus has done and so feel secure, help us to repent when we find ourselves doing that and put our trust again in Jesus alone. We pray this in his name. Amen.